This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. This episode is brought to you by craftbeer.com, home of the most powerful brewery locator in the universe. Whether you're traveling in a new city or planning your next beercation, head to craftbeer.com and explore the wide world of American craft beer. Want to support small and independent breweries? Look for the independent craft brewer seal when you search. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Andy Miller co-founder and co-brewer, co-head brewer for um, for Great Notion Brewing here in Portland, Oregon. We are here at HomebrewCon in, in uh, Portland and made a, a point of swinging over to the brand new brewery that Great Notion is building up here in the what northwest sector of uh, Portland. They made a name for themselves uh, within months of opening. They uh, had a very interesting business strategy, taking over a defunct uh, brew pub on the Alberta Street in Portland and then turning it into uh, maintaining the kitchen and turning uh, the the beer program from a rather traditional beer program into one that uh, focuses on really progressive styles. Within a few months of opening the brew pub, they had already been voted one of the best IPAs in Portland. That put them on our radar and uh, they came out to our brewer's retreat in Astoria, Oregon. We've been good friends ever since. We've been so excited to watch the, the arc and growth for Great Notion. They have recently uh, embarked on this program to open this production brewery with a what 30 barrel brew house yeah it's a little bit bigger than the pub it's a little bit bigger than that seven barrel pub system right you know um and canning uh their hazy ipas and uh uh, progressively flavored stouts. Uh, if you've had any of the beer, you know that they are really known for um, you know pushing ingredients to the limit and capturing flavors in beer that uh, we didn't always know were possible. Andy and I are drinking right now from a crowler of Mandela, which if you read Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, you'll know was the top scoring IPA in our 2017 annual IPA issue. Uh, cheers for that. Andy. We like to call this one uh, Martha's Mandela because it's the one that the... Uh TTB tried to shut us down, and we almost had to dump this batch. Luckily, we were able to save about half of it. Well, fantastic. I'm glad we get to drink it now. Uh, but yeah, welcome to the podcast, Andy. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Of course. If you uh, saw the, the story on Great Notion and the Brewing Industry Guide that we put out, uh, there was a nice case study on how they've grown, how they've used both food and uh, and beer and progressive styles to kind of build a business. But it's been a pretty spectacular arc for you guys. Um, did you ever expect to be now here building a, a large footprint brewery in an industrial part of town with a 30 barrel brew house? Um, how did that match up to the, the goals as you guys sat around as home brewers, uh, brewing together in your neighborhood and then, uh, and concocting that idea that we should start a brewery? Yeah, we definitely never expected this. I mean, my, my whole goal with, uh, opening a brewery with, uh, it first started with James and I, and James, uh, Dugan. James Dugan, right. And uh, I just wanted to brew on a commercial system and we didn't have that luxury. Yeah. And uh, you, it's pretty hard to get hired at a brewery. So instead of trying to get a job, uh, we just decided to start our own brew pub. And uh, we, we looked around for a while. There was a couple small facilities that we were going to put a little three barrel system in. Mm-hmm. It probably would have been disastrous. <laughs> uh, and then luckily we met Paul 
and he's our our business guy. We like to call him our hype man. Yeah, and uh, he helped us put it together. He's a flavor Flav to he, your, uh, he your Chuck D's. He's the he's the flavor Flav with skills. Okay. Uh, and yeah, he he got us into a brew pub and on a busy uh, northeast Alberta street in a really nice neighborhood, and it just kind of went from there. What I love about that strategy, you know, there's so many folks that you know, get into the let's start a brewery, and they they you know the the initial thought is let's build it from the ground up, you know, let's buy a new system, let's build a new place, and that is um, that's a very work intensive, very time uh, and labor intensive process to build a brewery from that ground up, especially right. for folks that have not, that don't necessarily have the experience and knowledge interest. You know, they, they just haven't worked in, in that kind of commercial capacity and don't necessarily know what they should know in order to build out a facility like that. Right. But for you guys, you, you took, uh, you know, moved in and, uh, found a guy that wanted to get out of the business and, uh, it made that entree into brewing uh, that much faster. Right. Well. And I really, we looked at a couple of buildings and if we would have, uh, we would have gone ahead with doing it that way. I think it would have sunk us. There's, uh, we found out, especially building this place out, that it's just, uh, I mean, everyone always says double your budget is what you're going to end up paying. We found that to be very true and sometimes maybe even triple wow. your initial budget. So I would tell anyone looking to start a brewery, like try to try to wait. It's worth waiting until someone's going out of business and try yeah. to jump in that way. Or uh, or contract brewing seems to be a really nice way to get into it now. Or or the uh, what do they call it when two breweries are under one roof? Alternating proprietorship. Yeah, alternating proprietorship. So we we've got a good friend at Ruse Brewing who did that for a while with Culmination, and they're about to open up here in a couple months, or actually a couple weeks. And that was a good way for him to get in and, and yeah. make some money while you're building out a new place. That's certainly a good point. That maintaining cash flow and so you know, right. having money come in rather than just you know pushing right. money out is is pretty important. As you're in a build out phase, if it takes six months or twelve months or eighteen months, right? Yeah, you know, that's a lot of time when you are spending money and uh, you have no revenue coming back in. And even though we were not making beer for about five months after we took over uh, a brew pub in Northeast Portland, we we were never closed a day. Yeah. We, we started one day, it was the mash time. The next day it was great notion. Although the sign didn't change or anything like that, we were actually had revenue coming in. Hmm. So that was a really nice way to go about it. How do you, um, how do you go and, and convince people that had gone to this other brew pub before and, you know, maybe had a mediocre experience with the beer to then take a risk on you guys? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. we, we came in, the place was kind of like a dive brewery. Okay. Uh, no disrespect to uh, the previous owner, but that's sure. kind of what they were going for. It was a neighborhood kind of uh, cheaper place. They had $2 Tuesdays where come in, get craft beer for $2, which, right. you know, you can't make a whole lot of money no, doing that. No, not on a little And uh, so we, system. you know, we came in and slightly started bumping up the prices and we brought in really good beer, uh, really good other people's beer yeah, and kind of slowly jacked up the prices and worked on the food. And, uh, I, I feel like by the time we had our own beer there, the customer that was coming in day one was no longer coming in anymore. Mm. And we kind of had a new, uh, new wave of customers that knew what we wanted to do and kind of saw the vision of where we wanted to go. 
So let's talk a little bit about that vision. I mean, when you all were homebrewers and, 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 you know, working on some of the recipes and some of the recipes that you brew now on a commercial scale got their start as homebrew recipes right. for you guys, um, they were, they and they still are, remarkably flavor forward compared to what the beer landscape looked like a couple of years ago when you launched into it. Um, you know, you brew a lot of food-inspired beers, beers named yeah. things like Double Stack uh, that uh, with a heavy maple syrup component that tastes like a stack of pancakes or a blueberry muffin, which not only tastes like blueberry, but also the muffin component. Um, yeah, how did those beers come about, and what inspired you to make those kind of beers first on a homebrew scale, and then uh, you know decide there was going to be a commercial market for that? Right. I mean, we always wanted to approach commercial brewing like we did at home, and we just wanted to have fun with beer. And uh, that's something, you know, you're eating dessert, and you're like, huh, this, could this be a beer? I think this might be a beer. Wouldn't that be fun? Would would someone enjoy drinking this and, and have fun doing it? And that's really how we look at making beer. Well, So let's talk a little bit about that making process. Um, right. Know. On a homebrew scale, you can do small things, or you can, you know, pile a, a whole bunch of actual muffins into a, a kettle, or you know, if you want, which wanted. we may or may not have done. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, on, on a commercial scale, uh, you know, those things get a little bit different. How how do you achieve those kinds of flavors? And from a brewing perspective, what do you do to make sure that? Uh, um, uh, to get the effect from those flavors, because through that brewing process, with a lot of heating and cooling and everything else, I mean, it's it's pretty easy to destroy volatile flavors like you know delicate blueberry or even you know a lot of those that maple character. Right. Well, a lot of our beers, we you know we start with a base that we've we've proven works, and uh, so for blueberry muffin, it's a it's just a base Berliner that we've gotten to be a little sweeter because we feel like the sweetness brings out the fruit. And then uh, we always kind of had that, that, this particular Berliner we made had this. What's your, what are your gravity goals for the, for the Berliner? Gravity goal, I mean, we're looking for uh, seven, uh, 6%, and we're finishing above uh, 1020, so okay. like 1026, even oh, wow. up to 1030. So keep a little residual sugar in there. A little residual yeah. sugar? <laughs> So, and that started out as a beer, uh, a Berliner at home that, you know, we were finishing much lower than that. And we were uh, bottle conditioning with Brett and it kind of had this nice yeah. Brett flavor. But we, we always noticed unless you added the Brett, we were getting this uh, muffin character. Hmm. So that's, you know, James is good at coming up with ideas. And he's like, why don't we add some blueberries to that and, and make a blueberry muffin, which hmm. was just a little bit mind-blowing at the time so we did it and uh we served that what do you think the muffin component comes from i mean you know my instant thought is like is this a thp thing yeah and, it uh, probably yeah. is okay and uh you know it's it's you got some a lot of wheat goes into yeah. that recipe so i think it's partially that and uh yeah it just goes really well with blueberries and yeah no, you know, and I mean, I guess that raises that question. People look at THP potentially as a uh, off flavor, right. but within the you know particular gestalt of a specific beer and idea and recipe, uh, it could actually add quite a bit of, of flavor right. and uh, and component to that. And 
Uh, I have had other some other beers like Crooked Staves, Mama Bear's Cherry Pie, where that captures some of that you know pie crust flavor in addition to the pie. And um, you know, I, I'm not exactly I couldn't tell you that it's DHP because I haven't run the the, the labs on it, but right. it does seem to add something enjoyable to right. that. Yeah, I've always felt like with the kettle sours, you got to get Brett involved in order yeah. to clean it up a little bit, and it's just a beer that that we found a way to work with with the flavor that we didn't necessarily like in the base beer uh, to make something new and exciting, and and that's really how we've approached making beer all together is is instead of saying, hey, you can't do that. Yeah, you know. Well, can we? Can we? Can we figure out a way to to work with that and make yeah. something beautiful with it? And and that's uh, just something James has been really good at. And right. me and him working together, it, it it's worked out really well for us. So you did you did do a batch where you threw a bunch of muffins? And oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> may how, may, how or, may, may or not have done that commercially, but definitely yeah. at home that was happening and. It, I mean, it worked out fine. Yeah. We even we did a batch one time, and this doesn't have anything to do with Blueberry Muffin, but we did a beer with Pine State and uh, threw a bunch of biscuits into the mash. And I thought it was going to be a disaster, but uh, it worked out worked out fine. Hmm. Why did you think it was going to be a disaster? I did the butter. Yeah. I was a little worried yeah. about the butter. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and the you know the salt too. That was another thing we we tried to think about our salt profile and how yeah. much salt we were adding with the, uh, with the biscuits. So double stack with, the, right. with this kind of maple component, capturing intense maple flavor can be a really hard thing to do in a beer. Right. Obviously the sugar, you know, ferments out if there's any yeast left in the beer. And so right. you're left with some flavor components that are also, you know, highly volatile. Right. How do you capture that kind of intensity of maple flavor in a, in a big stout like that? We, uh, we add it cold side. Okay. And we, uh, you know, it's it's something. Are you crashing before you do that? In we order are. To, like, we're crashing, trying to get as much yeast out as we possibly can, and okay. we add it cold side. And uh, we're we're for, or we're uh, we're keeping it cold enough. We keep it cold the whole time, which obviously now that we're making cans is yeah. a little wor- can be a little worrisome. But we carbonate it low enough that we're confident that the amount of sugar we're adding would not be uh, problematic. Okay. Um, and you, and how you know so with that you know if there is live yeast bat left in there and there is still right. sugar to attenuate right. um you know do you are you worried at all about uh some of those things blowing up eventually you know that's it's something we've always been told we can't do and and we've done it and we, we you know we took crawlers and sat them out and let them sit. I think the yeah. beer's got so much alcohol in it, and at that point, the yeast is so stressed out. It's just not. It doesn't yeah. really want to do anything. It's good. So point. we, you know, we've in all of our uh, tests we've done, we've never had a problem. So until we have one, we're gonna keep making it. But that so that is real maple syrup then added in uh, in secondary. Yes. Really. Well, okay. Uh, all of those folks out there that thought, uh, you know, they've got to be pumping it full of extracts. Uh, uh, are going to have some second thoughts right now. Same thing with peanut butter. Are you using peanut flour for uh, Peanut Brother? The similar uh, stuff. Yeah, we've peanut flour works yeah. really well in okay. that beer. We've tried a few things, and yeah. uh, the flour works really well. Something we did a beer with microphone, and uh, he used the the flour. Yeah, and it was pretty cool. So we started trying that as well. 
What do you typically do? Is that what you use now, or do you use uh, another method on that? Uh, we may or may not use that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now you're sounding like a, a Belgian brewer. I cannot <laughs> confirm or deny. Okay, it's my job to press you on that. All right. so, uh, maybe let's switch gears a little bit and talk about hops. You know, in addition to these kinds of you know flavor-forward, culinary-inspired beers like uh, like Double Stack and Blueberry Muffin, uh, you guys have really carved out a notch uh, when it comes to flavorful hoppy beers right. on the hazy side with, uh, you know, kind of a balanced bitterness, which them. is something, you know, I feel like that was the first thing we were known for. That's my favorite thing that we make. Yeah. And, uh, we, we were accused of adding fruit and extracts to IPAs early on by, by commercial brewers here in town. And it was absolutely none of that. Huh. It was all hops. And uh, I think a lot of them, have come to understand that that you know you can get those sorts of flavors out of hops, so that's something we're very proud of. I no. mean, it's kind of nice to be accused of adding <laughs> juice to a to to a hoppy beer yeah. when you know you didn't. For sure, for sure. Now, you know, as a as a home brewer, like how do you, you know was this part of that concept of we want to push hops flavors in a new direction? Um, you know, we are inspired by these hazy brew, you know, brewers in the the Northeast. Um, and want to continue, I, I, but how do you visualize that? And then how do you go from, Hey, we want to make some beers like this to figuring out how to build a base beer that, uh, properly allows, you know, creates a palette for those flavors to, to float upon. Um, right. And well, then figure out how these combos and mixes and timing and everything else works right. to, to maximize that. Well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, just like pretty much everything. And it sure. was something that James and I both were we're you know making hoppy beers in every possible way we could we could try to make them and one thing i remember being inspired by which was a brewery i can't even remember the name of the brewery and actually probably no one's ever heard of them but it was a very like very thick uh pale beer Mm -hmm. that that just like was not your typical like dry beer and that was something that was inspiring and then, you know, the hop combinations, I feel like a lot of times we start out with a single hop and then we'll add we'll add another hop, kind of change small increments and, and see where it goes. And then once you become a commercial brewer, you're brewing all the time. So it's a little yeah. easier to, to figure out what goes well together. How much do your beers change batch to batch? You know, what and how, I mean, I mean you know, you're right. trying to test some of these parameters as right. you change them. And, uh, they and all still change. Sure, yeah. I mean, we're, we're not... We're not trying to make the exact same beer every time. We we feel like if we can make the beer better, there's no reason not to. Just because Junior, everyone loved Junior last year, doesn't mean we need to make it exactly how we made it last year. If everybody's palates are changing, would uh, you know? You look back at a beer like Playing the Elder, and that was so mind blowing five years ago or however many years ago when we had it for the first time. But it, it's not necessarily as mind-blowing as it was back then not to say it's a bad beer now but we're pers- all of our palates have changed and progressed and so you gotta you gotta keep pushing it that's a good point that you know and it's something that we see you know i spend a lot of time with our blind review panel of, of bjcp judges reviewing beer for the magazine and i've watched their palates change significantly over the last five years and uh, now i think that that change has accelerated even more 
where it's not happening over a year or two years, but it's happening over six months or right. three months that uh, the number of inputs. And I, and I think that it, uh, that bear is talking about that this idea that a, a beer is a recipe is a little different than the way you seem to approach it, that a beer is what a consumer expects for that beer to be. Right. Um, you know, and I have, I've talked to plenty of brewers that have very different opinions about this. You know, we brew the same recipe. It's always the same. It's going to be, the same, you know, um, but having said that, you know, there are agricultural changes. There are changes in your malt. There are batched of, you know, changes in every raw ingredient that you use. And you're right, that consumer and the way that their expectation, you know, plays into that. Um, you know, I often see it online. Well, batch one was better. You know, right. Batch one of this beer was so much batch better. Batch one was always better. Batch one because <laughs> it's not better. the one you have sitting right in front of you right then. But the I think in some ways they're right because right. psychologically speaking, when you had that beer for the first time, it had some sort of effect on you because it was new and because right. it was different and because it was disruptive from what your expectation was for beers before that. So when you had that beer for the first time. You had a you know a, a, an experience that was rather visceral around it, and now that you've had it and had others that are similar to it, and then had other beers that have been inspired by that beer, with other brewers answering uh, you know some of the questions that, that that beer posed and asked to them, they your palate's in a different place. You know your psychological assumption about that beer is in a different place, and so of course it doesn't feel as revolutionary or different to you now since you've already since your palate itself has changed as a brewer what do you do to keep up with that kind of arms race because you still want your the brands that you make juice jr or ripe or or mandela or whatever to hit your consumer in the same kind of way that it hit them in the first time but uh you know what are the how do you change that to make sure that they are perceiving it that same kind of way yeah i i I mean for us i think we've we've turned up i mean james quoted at one times and I thought it was really nice is we're we're still listening to the same song but we turned up the volume a little bit yeah. something like that was the quote I can't remember if that's yeah. that's the exact one but we we have started dry hopping uh using more hops huh. at first we were right around three pounds per barrel and uh, I think now we're closer to four on most beers and and five on a lot of beers so that's one thing we've done we we've I think the other thing is just variety. Is it like maybe, maybe Juice Jr. doesn't change all that much, but maybe we make Juice Invader, which is yeah. uh, you know a, a cross of Juice Jr. and our Space Invader. So yeah. basically, you add Galaxy anything, it makes it better, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the secret to a great notion beer. Just add Galaxy to anything, right? Monkish might be doing that. They they just might. <laughs> I think Henry pretty much said that they were doing that. <laughs> And he also told us, you know, told me that he was doing the same thing you're doing. That uh, you know, they're newer batches. They they are dry hopping at a high, at higher rates, and right. uh, you know, for that same reason that you just mentioned. Um, when it comes to hops, what are you really excited about? Excited about? I mean, I'm still excited about the same hops we've been using for two years, and yeah. uh, I'm excited that this year we got to pick. Well, it was a group group selection, but we got to pick our mosaic, mosaic and citrus. So mm. every lot is the same, which is cool because it yeah. it's a bummer when you're really happy with a lot and then you open a new box and it's just not there. Uh, which you know we just use it hot side and and don't really worry about it too much and use the good stuff for dry hopping. But it's nice to have a consistently good every single time we open a 
box. But next year we get to select without being in a group, mm. so we get a lot more say of what we're getting. Yeah. Uh, you know, still so to put that in, you know, for for those folks that aren't as familiar with hops contracting, you know, most most hops uh, brokers are going to require you know a thousand or twelve hundred pounds or so of a specific hop in order to allow you to fly out to Yakima and hand select from that, and then. Uh, they build a pecking order of brewers based on the kind of volume that you order, and uh, you get to select based on where you fall within that kind of, of range. And so for you, you get you banded together with a few other brewers to, right. to build that kind of you know level of volume. But then at the same time, you have a few of you guys in the room all rubbing them. And, well, uh, what was interesting about it is they put us in three or four different rooms. Each room has four or five breweries in it. So we were in there with uh, the new brewery, Grains of Wrath, uh, in there with Cloudburst, you know, a couple other places that make great hoppy beers. Sure. And we all came to a pretty quick conclusion of which lots we wanted for each each yeah. one. And then after at the end of all that, they send you in another room with every every. Uh, every place for each room and then whatever you ranked number one whatever the next room ranked number one you had to fight over which one (laughs) you were kidding so at the end of the day it was like we barely got what we wanted Hmm. so this year it'll be a little easier and then you know you were asking single elimination bracket right uh, right. but but the second the second part of it was like we were blindsided by okay but uh, and then you know we're still super excited about Galaxy. We're, we've got a little bit more of that on our contract, so yeah. we're able to add that into to beers. And we're making beers like Juice Invader and uh, Ripe Invader, which are you know Juice Junior or Ripe blended with Space Invader. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's not we don't actually and blend the beer, but we blended the recipes. Okay. Space Invader is your your Galaxy based right? Ho- okay. Right. Hoppy beer brand. Uh, and then, so Citra, Mosaic, Galaxy, we've got some Laurel that we've been pretty excited about. Huh. Uh, trying to think what else. Laurel, we got a little Simcoe. That's Simcoe a, this year was Saison great. hop, Andy. What do you mean? Uh, I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty nice. We've been adding it yeah. in some IPAs. But, uh, the Simcoe this year was, it's, it's like it's back. I, I feel like Simcoe kind of went away for a few years, yeah. and this year it was super fruity and nice. We're really, we're really happy with it. It's an uh, interesting uh, you know, thing that, that comes with scale, and this is something that uh, we're, we're hearing more brewers talk about, that uh, as the brewery grows, it gives you more clout, more, uh, more chance, because you're doing a greater volume of business with your vendors, you can ask for more, demand more, get better service, get better, you know, quality product. Um, you know, for from the small scale brew pub where you're brewing a few hundred barrels a year now to you know where you're going with this large scale thirty barrel production brew house, um, that has to afford you a few more luxuries than you had before. Yeah, definitely. We're we're uh, you know, it's easier to get things like hops, and then you're able to afford toys, which help make things better i mean not better but but you're more consistent yeah like one thing that uh i really advocated for early on was with our new canning line i wanted a do meter and that's something we couldn't justify at the pub but we got it here and you know we've we've set up for canning runs and 
all of a sudden our, you know, first few cans we pull off the run, the DOs are insane, like mm. 200, 300. And, and we're like, you know, something's wrong. Whereas we didn't have a DO now, meter. Having said that, like know. 200 is still within spec for some large scale right. commercial well, I mean, We try, we DO. try to keep everything under 50. Okay. Uh, and we'd like to improve on that. I sure. feel like under 50 is a good target for us always. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So anyway, what we figured we out, say dissolved, that's dissolved. Yeah. Oxygen. Dissolved. Oxygen. So we take the can, we shake, shake it right. and then, uh, put it on the C box, which pierces the bottom of it and yep. sends it through this little machine. It tells you how much dissolves oxygen there is. So, you know, our DOs were like 200, 300. So then we figured out, all right, well, as a first canning run, we were all busy trying to figure everything out. We forgot to purge the hose. <laughs> that was all it was, you know? And, yeah, and yeah. so we were able to stop, purge the hose, you know, refill it with beer. We kegged one off to kind of get things going good, ran it again, and then boom, we're at like 35 DOs. Nice, so, nice. So that, that's, that's the kind of thing you you can get some luxury items, but it makes your beer better in the long run just because you're more consistent with what you're doing. For sure. So when it comes to that, I mean, we, we've we chatted a little bit about this in the past, but um, the way the beer is consumed, you know, it really matters and uh, with how you package it and what your goals are around that kind of thing. You know, with a fresh IPA, your hops, I mean, you want to maintain absolute lowest do you can so that the, those hops don't stale uh very quickly that it can um withstand packaging for that if you're serving it out of your out of your brew pub and you know um you're gonna you know the whatever you brewed last week is going to be sold by the end of next week right that's really not a, a huge concern it's going to move fast enough to where uh, you don't really have to worry about that yeah. but now as you move into more packaging and not just crowlering because again with crowlers there's still an assumption that Drink it fast, drink it fresh. You know, it's an IPA. Um, don't let it you know, get warm. Uh, when you start putting it in cans, then inevitably people are going to start shipping it around the country to their friends. And that does happen to a lot of your beer. And you have to consider that kind of method and way in which people consume your beer. Uh, and you, you have to figure that into some of your production processes. Right. And it's kind of terrifying, yeah. especially when you see, you know, you look at Instagram and it's something you put out. A month and a half ago and it's uh you know you're seeing people pour it and and enjoy it and and you hope that it's the same thing as you sent out the door a month and a half earlier so that's something we we try our best there's only so much you can do beer right, beer's right. a you know it it has an expiration date on it i don't you know it's sometimes it's questionable like what that expiration date is yeah and that's something where you hold back beers we were talking about this earlier and just holding back beers and then trying them a month later, a month and a half later, two months later, and then you can kind of fill up, figure out what your shelf life is and where it really starts to fall off. And you guys are still on the kind of front end of that. With, yeah. With I mean, we, we really, we don't even have, so we were, you were asking earlier if we had any cans from our first couple of runs, we, we held some back for QC and then, uh, the TTB shut us down and <laughs> all of a sudden we weren't canning every week again. And, uh, all those cans seem to have disappeared. Hmm. So hmm. I think some of them might've gotten mailed out to, uh, people like craft beer and brewing. I don't know if you guys got any, but you know, uh, Polly has not sent us any cans. Right. Well, so that's uh, it's definitely not me. Well, I, I, <laughs> we made the beer and put it in cans yeah. and then, so Polly didn't do his job. 
All right. Fair enough. Tell me a little <laughs> bit about that. So you guys are in the midst of, you know, you have the, the full-on production brewery installed in this warehouse. You, you've right. you know, been building it out. You've, you've got your fermentation cellar in there. You have, you know, various uh, uh, wooden spirits barrels with sour beers and clean beers in here. But as you started, uh, after you got started, the TTB uh, came in and did an inspection and then shut down your brewing here for a little bit. Right. And it was... Uh it was a pretty pretty bad day uh so we had gone to europe to do the mckellar uh beer celebration in copenhagen we were gone for about two weeks and then we get back and they had they had set up a uh a meeting that was supposed to be not it was just a we're just checking in you know we're not gonna really check anything we're just we just want to see your place you know nice to meet you kind of thing and uh, while we were away, the construction company uh, progressed on the work they're doing on our restaurant and tap room, and they they blew out a wall like the first day we were back. So two days later, the TTB shows up, and we're missing a wall that was on our plan when we applied for the license, which was a big deal apparently. Uh, even though we had a fence with barbed wire on it and a 24-hour security guard and alarm system so no one could walk in the brewery, that apparently wasn't enough. So they immediately shut us down and made us spend uh, $11,000 on a wall <laughs> that we're going to tear down in about wow. a month or two. So anyway, it was really scary. Uh, luckily, you know, Paul is really good at what he does, and he... Uh, he made some calls and got a wall built super quickly and negotiated getting our license back from the government and uh, got it really quick. He made some calls to the congressman. I think he talked to uh, Oregon Brewers Guild president who talked to someone at the Brewers Association, and we got everything we needed within a week. So... That was that was nice. That's rather impressive. Right. So you're back to you're back to brewing. You're back. We are to- back to brewing. We've uh, we canned two batches this week. We're kind of back on. We're brewing two days a week. Canning two days a week right now. Um, for your releases, you know, you are you have followed that model of doing uh, you know organized can releases now once a week. Right. Um, then, but you're brewing pretty big batches of beer if you're brewing them on a 30 barrel system. Yeah. Um, and you are publicizing those and, uh, you know, for Saturday mornings and getting lines and those are, those are selling out in, in one day of those releases. Yeah. Generally, uh, they'll sell out the day of, if we have any leftover, we take them over to the pub and we, yeah. we feel like that's kind of nice for, uh, loyal, uh, regular customers over there. And I mean, really, that that business model, we feel like it's best for us. Uh, we make more money every every can we sell. We feel like it's better for the customer as well. They get yeah. fresher beer. We uh, we're terrified of not having complete control over our beer. Hmm. So if you send something out and then you know if it's not tasting how you want it to taste, it's like it's hard not being able to be like, all right, dump that keg. Because if if you sell a keg to a bar and you tell them to dump it, they're not going to want to dump it, even sure. if you gave them their money back, you know, or gave them another keg. Yeah. So we like having that complete. Well, I guess control. yeah. I guess you know you know for one who it was that bought it from you. Right. You know too that when you sold it to them, it was in the you know specific right. kind of condition. Um, what they then did with it after that, 
you know, you can't necessarily be responsible. You know for. that you've done everything within your control to make it as good as it can possibly be when the customer gets it. And that's something, you know, you, you see, uh, beer bars all the time. They'll just sit a keg out, you know, not cold. And most of the time that's fine. Sometimes it's not. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but you know, having said that, like you have the ability to make a lot of beer now. And you right. certainly could probably, you know, crank that up. And there are other breweries that brew similar styles to you, like Trillium and Treehouse, that right. are not just doing, you know, one or two cans per week, but are, you know, cranking out five or six or eight or, uh, you know, producing batches that are as many as 1,200 cases. Uh, what are your, your case releases are around what? Uh, it's generally 150, 200 cases yeah. per, per batch. So we're we're generally releasing two different batches per day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but then again, like I said, Trillium can, or Treehouse can release, right. you know, 1200 cases of yeah. that beer and still, still sell it. Um, you know, is, is there something, uh, you know, strategic about the way that you all, uh, maintain lower numbers in order to uh, make sure that uh, there's demand for that? Or is that really just a function of, of where you guys are right now in your brewing process? I, I think it's probably more of a function of what we've got going on right now, just the amount of tanks we have and everything for the moment. But I think moving forward, I, I do think that's strategic to uh, to to not if your beer's everywhere, then it nobody wants to come see you to get it, you know. And uh, we want you to come see us. And so I think moving forward in this place, uh, we can obviously make a lot more beer if we get more tanks. So we'll definitely we don't want to make too much beer to where it's not good anymore. That's one one concern of ours. And uh, but I think looking to the future, I think we'll probably open some tap rooms in other cities and. And maybe, you know, us ship the beer ourselves to another place to sell it directly to the customer. So that's something we've talked about. And I don't know that I'm not saying 100 percent that's going to happen, but that's yeah. what we're we're discussing internally. Why? Why do it that way? I mean, for one, we still have complete control over it. We make more uh for direct sales like that, we make more than we would if we sold it to a, uh, a distribution company or, or a tap house. And uh, we enjoy doing it. We enjoy seeing the customer. And it's, it's something we, I, I kind of miss it here because we're waiting on the tap room to be built out. And it's like, yeah. I don't have that day-to-day interaction with our customers anymore right now until our, until our restaurant tap room's built. So. What does that interaction look like, and what does it mean to you, and how does that impact the you know, the beers that you brew? Man, tough questions. It's my job. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, I you know, it's just you get to know people, and yeah, and and we're in a fishbowl over there at the pub, so everybody watches what you're doing, which is a little weird at first, but you get used to it, and then you know, you just say what's up, and you uh, a lot of times you're going out to get water or something because you're thirsty and it's like hey you know ryan what's up you know and they'll tell you what they like or don't like about a particular beer which you know sometimes that information's good information sometimes it's not but it's it's kind of nice to to have that feedback on a day-to-day basis and just getting to know people and you see them around you know it's uh it feels nice I don't know. 
That has to be, you know, that has to be an interesting challenge for you. And I mean, a lot of brewers face this kind of thing where, you know, you get into it, you're a home brewer, you make beer, you share it directly with your friends, they taste it, they give you their feedback. Most of the time they tell you they love it. And then, uh, you know, behind your back, they say, yeah, I kind of yeah. Dumb, I hated that. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, you, you know, when you, you know, as your business is successful and as there's demand for your, you know, for more of your beer, Inevitably, you grow, you expand. Now, you know, you're, you're moving from a seven-barrel system where it was you and James, you know, in the brew house brewing most of the beer or all the beer. And now you're in two different brew houses. That's original seven plus a 30, and you've got a larger staff. And right. you're spending less time on the brew deck, you know, and, but you're spending a lot more time managing people right. or managing the processes or dealing with vendors or, you know, and it's not the necessarily the, the creative part of that business um, that has to kind of pose a challenge for you and you still have to what you have to really work at, at remaining in touch with that thing that you had that, that sparked your interest in this in the first place right yeah I agree with that I, I spend a good portion of my day every day is spent uh, buying ingredients mm. and keeping up with inventory and, and getting new uh, equipment which some of that's fun some of it's not yeah uh, and I think initially when when this facility was dreamed up, James and I were going to float back and forth. We were both going to stay creatively making new beers. And, and this new facility was going to be a way for us to be more creative. And then, you know, now that it's here, we only have six tanks. We can only really brew twice a week here the way everything's set up. It's like now I'm seeing that... <laughs> It's just the same thing over again. We're just still making, we're still, you know, we can stay creative, but we're make, making beer and it's all selling out. And uh, we don't have the luxury of, of getting too crazy creatively. So, yeah, I, I definitely, I look forward to the day where this thing's running smoothly on its own. And we've got some really good people working for us. And I think we're getting close to that uh, as long as we don't grow too fast again. Uh, so I, I think I'll be able to jump back over to the pub and brew some weird stuff with James again, and that'll be fun, but it's definitely a challenge, like, like staying, staying, doing the actual brewing. And that's what we're, we're in this. We're homebrewers. It's, we were brewing for free, you know, we were brewing for nothing. It wasn't for, to get cheap beer. It was just cause we loved doing it and waking up on a Saturday and, you know, heating your water up and uh, getting on the back back patio and just hanging out in the summer, drinking beer and making beer. You know, that's that's why we were doing this. Is the love still there? Oh, even, absolutely. Even I love sense. my job more than anything. It's great. You know, it's like I, I feel like a lot of people envy brewers because it's a cool industry, man. People are nice to each other. People help each other out. It's a it's a really cool industry. And, and there, I do love it. Yeah, and there is something about this. I mean, where what you all have achieved and the kind of respect that you've built in the industry in a, in a couple of short years, uh, you know, has been pretty intense. Uh, but it's also afforded you the ability to connect with similarly creative brewers uh, at your scale and even larger, you know, around the country and even even around the world for that matter. Yeah, as of recently around the world. I mean, there's a group of friends that we have and we see them at festivals and i mean mostly all over the country but just recently a lot of the people that were in copenhagen 
We're also in Greeley, Colorado last weekend for the, the Worldworks uh, Festival. And then Paulie was in Brooklyn with a bunch bunch of the same people that were in Copenhagen at the other half festival. So it's it's a pretty cool group of people, man. How, how do the beers that your peers brew at those breweries impact uh, the way the way that you brew and the way that you even think about you know, designing you, or building beers? You definitely, I mean, for one, you try different things, and if you like it, you're you're definitely going to try to like brew something similar. I mean, yeah. you're not not rip it off, but you know, a lot of times it's just a process that someone's doing, and and you you just want to try a process because it sounds cool. So there's a lot of that. You know, we talk talk shop and just different things we're doing and uh you know one of the one of the things we've been doing for a while now that just from talking to other brewers we we learned about was and we did it at home some too is just the whole i mean i guess at home it's called the hop stand where you yeah where you throw all the hops in at the end you let it sit so like what we've been doing for quite a while is we'll cool the wort down in the kettle to you know 160 degrees or so add an insane amount of whirlpool hops and that's the only hops that's that's going into the kettle yeah. at all there's no first war there's you know no 30 minute edition no five minute edition right. so and then we put them in there do a little whirlpool and then we send it to the fermenter so it's uh and, and that's just a just an example of something that someone else was talking about it's like man that's super cool we we got to try that it is you. You did mention that earlier before the podcast to me that the way that you manage bitterness now in your hazy IPAs is not through specific bittering charges at you know X number of right. minutes that are going to isomerize over however long. You control bitterness by what temperature right. you, you run that hop stand at at the uh, in the whirlpool. Right. Yeah, that's what we've been doing that for a little. And not all of our beers either. The higher we, the temperature, have, then the yeah, more the bitterness higher, you get out of that. The higher the temperature, more bitterness. So you know we'll run. Something we want super soft and like almost no bitterness. We'll cool it down to about 155 degrees, and then uh, we're adding 44 pounds of hops and 30 barrels, uh, pretty much on everything here. And then uh, you know if we want, if it's like a double IPA, we want a little more bitterness. Maybe we'll hit 170, 175. We even did a beer at 195, which was you know it's not it's not that cool compared yeah. to boiling but it, it does make a little bit of a difference um we're getting close to the end here but i know oh, that that can of that uh, crawler of uh I, I finished off the mandela crawler <laughs> so you're out of luck my friend um uh, you, I did notice in your tap room that there are some uh, some spirits barrels full of of some of these stouts like uh, Double Stack right. and French Toast, French toast. and uh, Vanilla Limousine. Yeah, uh, what's the plan for those? Because inquiring beer nerds want to know. <laughs> right. So as soon as next week, we should be racking the Double Stack barrels, getting it in a bright tank, and uh, putting. We're gonna put some more coffee on it because some of it got coffee some of it didn't and it's been a while so uh, we're going to do another little coffee addition and then uh, carbonate it up and we'll have a mobile bottler in here at some point we're waiting on labels right now but hopefully like within the month we'll have that ready and I don't we we'd have talked to Polly about what our goal is what our game plan is about the sale of that is it could i would imagine it could be pretty crazy I, one one could imagine i <laughs> can't wait to see the lines for that well 
Cheers. Yeah, Andy cheers. Miller. Uh, we didn't get to talk to James Dugan or Polly Ryder, uh, you know, for this one, but they are your two partners in this they business. They are. a great notion and uh, deserve the credit as such. Absolutely. Um, I appreciate you taking the time talking to me on the podcast and uh, sharing some of your thoughts about brewing with our audience. Uh, cheers. I'm going to try to drink as much beer as I can right now of yours before, before I have you to get on the plane. hop on a plane back to Colorado. But, right, well, uh, thank you for having us, Jamie. Uh, we really appreciate what you guys have done for us and uh you know inviting us to astoria that was so cool to be able to do that <laughs> and uh, thanks hayden and uh we appreciate the articles in the magazine man thanks a lot hey it's it's not a thing you guys it's make a some great magazine oh. you guys should go get it <laughs> <laughs> on that note yes if you want to subscribe to craft beer and brewing magazine you can at beerandbrewing.com encourage everyone to do that And uh, as well, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. Uh, We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Cheers. Cheers. This episode has been brought to you by craftbeer.com, home of the most mouthwatering map in the world, the map of U.S. breweries. If you find yourself in a new city and want to sample the local flavors, or if you just want to marvel at the vast American beer landscape, visit craftbeer.com. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.